Let's turn in the, our Bibles this morning to James, James chapter 2. The Bible is a, a good indication that God loves us. He gave us his rec- recorded word for uh, us to learn and to live by. And uh, so what a privilege we have. What an evidence of his love. James chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. The title of the message this morning, Remaining Impartial in a World Full of Favoritism. Last week, we're in the last part of James chapter 1, and we saw that God is faithful. His faithfulness can be seen in the lights in the universe that he created. And he also expects faithfulness to be seen in, in those that are called his children, were to imitate that attribute of faithfulness. Well, today, another attribute that we're to imitate is his impartiality. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, in verse 17, it says, God regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. In other words, he's not bribed. He doesn't regard persons. In Galatians 2.6, he says, God accepteth no man's person. He's talking about being partial. And God is not that way. We live in a world that places people on pedestals. We have seen famous people, and you probably, when they come through town, you want to you get their autograph. It used to be you wanted to get their autograph. Now you want a selfie with, taken with them. We often brag about who, who, whom we know, or uh, better yet, if we find somebody in our family tree, as you look back, find someone who is famous or wealthy or talented, uh, that's wonderful, but of course we have to trim off some of those branches when we find somebody who is an outlaw or a lowlife and it shows up in our search. If anyone could boast about being related to someone important, it could be James. He was the son of Mary and Joseph. Uh, he was the Lord's half-brother. We say a half-brother because God is the father of Jesus. Joseph was the father of James. How does James introduce himself in the book, though? Back in chapter 1 and verse 1, he writes, James, a servant of God. No pride in the family that he grew up in. Uh, Showing favoritism is, you say, a part of human nature. But when it comes to the way we treat other people who need Christ, we are to be imitators of our Savior who, who loved the unlovely, who was accused of being a friend of sinners, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, give us a clear lesson about the dangers of favoritism or partiality. We'll see three points, partiality rebuked, partiality examined, and then partiality condemned. First of all, in verses 1 through 4, partiality is rebuked. What does it look like? Uh, there's, an, there's an admonition here. James begins chapter 2 with this categorical statement. He's writing uh, to the Jews. He says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Again, he's he's writing to the the Jews who were in the diaspora. They were scattered abroad, and that's the Greek word for scattered. And they were meeting in in synagogues as they were scattered. He, he, He writes to them, My brethren, these are Jewish believers who've come to know Christ and trust him. The word assembly in verse 2 is the word synagogue. The early church was meeting in the synagogue still. 
And this is one of the evidences of an early date for the book of James. In fact, James is probably the first book written in the New Testament, AD 49. What's he telling them to do? Don't have faith with respect of persons. Don't have the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Why does James insert that phrase that identifies the Lord as the Lord of glory? I think the reason is mentioned here is so that we will see that he is the one who deserves all the attention, all the praise, all the glory. No one else can compare to his glory. So why, why should we have favorites as we look around? No one else even comes close. So why are we so enamored with important or wealthy people? We need to keep our focus on him. This admonition has to do with favoritism in the realm of faith. Do not be holding the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with favoritism or partiality. It's normal to have some close friends that you have things in common with, that you like being around and talking with them, probably more than others. Kids come back and they have favorite teachers at their school. You have your favorite candidate who's running for office this year. If you're married, you chose that one person out of all the others to love. They became your favorite, okay? It's okay to have some friends who are closer than others. But James is talking about favoritism with regard to faith. We should never shun or reject anyone when it comes to sharing the gospel of Christ. Don't drive by that person and say, you know, I'm just going to look the other way. Give them a gospel track. Jesus died to save them. Let's not have favoritism when it comes to the faith. The phrase with respect to person in verse 1 comes from one Greek word. And we're going to see three words in the text that show us what favoritism is. It's a good definition. It literally here in this word means an acceptor of a face. <laughs> Isn't that a good description of what favoritism is? I like to look at that person's face. I'm an acceptor of their face. That's what this, this first word uh, translated with four words in, in English, with respect of persons. D. Edmund Hebert writes, In the New Testament, it, is always, it always denotes favoritism or partiality, a biased judgment based on external circumstances such as race, wealth, social rank, or popularity, while disregarding the individual's intrinsic merit. And so we should never try to, to look at a person and determine how valuable they are on some kind of a, a self-imposed scale on externals. Not on their beauty, not on talents and abilities, not on power and influence, not on possessions. We see the value of an individual when we look at them the way God looks at them. He sees an eternal soul. Yes, totally depraved because of the fall but a candidate to show God's mercy, to show that we could be a trophy of his grace. James is talking specifically about how we should not make estimations of value then based on human standards. To, bef to, to befriend someone just because they're wealthy, uh, what they could bring to a church is totally contrary 
to the heart of our Savior. Jesus is the one who saw the widow casting in the two mites. And he said to his disciples in Luke 21, 3 through 4, This poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have cast of their abundance, or have of these abundance cast in the offerings of God. But she of her penury hath cast in all the living that she had, everything she had to live on. That was it. And Jesus saw that heart. James gives an illustration to help us understand what was going on in the synagogue. Verses 2 and 3. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. The sentence goes on, but we'll stop there. Notice James is, is describing these two men that come in uh, as far as their outward appearance is concerned. This is what is obvious when they come in. They come into the sem- assembly. One is obviously very wealthy. The other, obviously, very poor. And most commentators see that these men are two unsaved men who came into the assembly of believers. The rich man... He's described as having a gold ring. This word is only found here in the New Testament. And and it means, literally, gold-fingered. Hebert says the term doesn't suggest just one ring, but rather a finger laden with gold rings. How many rings can you put on your finger? And this is what they're, you know, they, they would come to church that way. Wearing rings in the first century, and especially in Rome, was a sign of wealth. There were some businesses in Rome that would rent rings for special occasions. Cicero, the Roman philosopher, wrote, We adorn our fingers with rings and we distribute gems over every joint. <laughs> he was seen. It was obvious. He had nice clothes, goodly apparel. The word goodly there is the same word as we saw, you see in verse 3 that we read gay clothing. Now that's an English word that's changed meanings uh, since the 1990s, but it meant uh, something that was uh, goodly. The the Greek word is lampra. It it literally means bright or shining. It could be talking about the colors. It could be talking about the makeup of the fabric. Sometimes they would sew gold and silver threads through fabric, and and this is the idea. It would reflect light. And so here's the, here's the clothing that he wore. Boy, the expensive things. What about the appearance of the poor man? No rings or jewelry of any kind are mentioned. In fact, it says that his clothing is vile. His raiment is vile. That mean, the word means dirty or shabby. You would think perhaps it smells foul. Now James shows the attitude of the church toward these two men in verse 3. You have respect. Here's the second word that describes partiality in this this passage. The first one, with respect to persons, uh, an acceptor of the face. This one, you have respect. It's the same English word, but the Greek word is epiblepo. Epi means uh, upon, and then blepo, you look. So you're, you're looking at this person. You're staring at them. That's what partiality does. Somebody walks into the church, into a room, they attract your attention. Everybody looks at them as they come in. You notice them. Nice dress. 
I wonder if I have one in my closet like that. I won't wear it next week. Now, that's an expensive suit. We notice the shoes or the jewelry or the watch, and we know here's somebody that has some money. And then James talks about uh, the words that are used in the greeting as this person comes in. The words to the wealthy man, sit thou here in a good place. The little nuances of the, of, of the statement. When they say here, it appears that they're leading this person to show them where their seat is. Rather than the poor man, stand thou over there. You know, kind of pointing. Oh, you can sit over there, but here, let me, let me take you to the seat that you should have. In the synagogue, there were just benches around the outside. There were some in the center. The best seats were called the chief seats in Matthew 23.6. Other seats may uh, have even had some footstools, it says here. The words to the poor man, stand over there, sit under my footstool, or under meaning by my footstool. So pointing to a place, it would be polite to give up your seat. It would be kind to even give up your footstool for someone to sit on, keep your own bench. But to make a person sit on the floor is very disrespectful. And that's what's going on here. What's the problem? Verse 4. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts or with evil motives? The attitude, uh, here is the third word that describes what favoritism looks like. Are ye not then partial? And here is a word diacrino. It means to discern, to judge literally to separate from or to withdraw from. And so you've, you've made some estimations mentally and you say this person belongs in this category, this other person belongs over here, and you have become a judge, a discriminator. And James asks this rhetorical question to get them to admit that it's true. That's what rhetorical questions do. Are you not discriminating against someone because of what they appear to have or not have? And the expected answer from a rhetorical question is yes, and that's exactly what they were doing. They would agree to that. What's the source of the problem? Notice, are ye not then partial in yourselves? And that's where partiality and favoritism begins. It's in our heart. Every fallen man has that heart that is partial. And unless the grace of God governs our thoughts and motives and changes that favoritism to a place where we love the person because they have an eternal soul, it will destroy the effectiveness of our witness. And people will leave that church saying, I'm not going back there. I was treated differently than others. The motivation of, our, of that partiality, you're judging with the wrong motives, from or out of evil thoughts. They were making gestures of kindness to some and ignoring others based on the perceived worth of each individual. And that was judging out of an evil, out of a prejudicial heart. We're to welcome everyone to come, to learn of Christ. Everyone needs to hear the gospel. Don't neglect those who are outcasts, those who are unknown, those who are poor. 
In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, 29, in that passage, it says that God hath chosen to save them so that no flesh should glory in his presence. Don't shy away from sharing the gospel with those who are poor, but don't shy away either from those who are rich, those who are well-known. They can be saved too. Lady Hastings was the Countess of Huntington, a noblewoman in England in the 18th century. She first started thinking about eternal things when one of the children she played with as a child died at nine years old. And she invested a lot of her money to reach others with the gospel. She said, when I gave myself to the Lord, I likewise devoted to him all my fortune At one point, she sold all of her jewelry so that she could build a chapel near her home. By the time she died, she had built 77 chapels throughout England. And there, the gospel was preached, and many people came to know Christ as Savior. She would invite people like Isaac Watts, George Whitfield, John Wesley, other evangelists, to speak not only to anyone who would come, but to her household, her servants, and also to the aristocracy, other noble men, other noble ladies, to come and, and hear the gospel. And many were converted during these messages. She personally witnessed to those that she gave jobs, to those she employed. She said to one worker, Thomas, I feel you never pray or look to Christ for salvation. And he argued that he had heard her giving the gospel to another co-worker who was on the other side of a hedgerow. And she, he, he had also responded to the gospel that day and trusted Christ. Lady Hastings said she was going to heaven because of one letter in the Bible. Maybe you've heard that story before. It's the letter M. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says, for ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And she would point out that he didn't say not any noble, but not many noble. That was the M. When Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, he was saying, It's impossible for a person who is trusting in his riches to be saved because of those riches. A man who has nothing of earthly value is more prone to look to God for help, both materially and spiritually. James lets us know that we must not withhold the gospel to anyone based on where they are on an economic scale Lady Huntington, I think, is a great example because she witnessed to everybody, whether noble or unknown. Jesus died to save sinners. And she didn't let favoritism, she didn't let partiality get in the way. Well, that's partiality rebuked. Let's look at verses 5 through 7 and see partiality examined. How does God feel about it? We read in verse 5, Hearken, my beloved brethren, James starts, verse 5, asking them to listen, to pay attention to this. And he he addresses them as brothers, those who are loved in Christ, my beloved brethren. And so he's, he's endeared them to himself, and he wants them to listen to this point. And he asks, 
Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich, rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? He asked two questions about God's choices. The first question, hasn't God called the poor to be rich in faith? Aren't you glad that he calls all to believe no matter what we have and what we don't have? Question number two, hasn't God called the poor to be heirs of the kingdom of God? He, makes this, he asks these questions to rebuke them. And he says, but ye have despised the poor. He rebukes them for, not, for, for, for mistreating people that God has called the poor to believe and, and inherit the kingdom of God. So now he asks two questions in verses 6 and 7 about how the rich men behave, how the wealthy act. We might say lifestyles of the rich and famous. Okay, Number one, do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seat? Hebert says the word oppress here is a compound word conveying the picture of a potentate exercising his power over those under his control in a hurtful and oppressive manner. And he, James is saying, don't rich people treat you that, mistreat you that way? And then don't they draw you before the judgment seats? The word draw is the word that's commonly used for fishermen who are drawing in a net or dragging in a net. It's used in Acts 16:19 of the silversmith who lays hands on Paul and Silas and drags them into the marketplace to the rulers. So these rich men were dragging them, where were they going? Into the judgment seats. They were, they were using the court system to get more money from these people who had nothing, who were already poor. He says, don't, don't they do that? And, and the second question, verse 7, don't they blaspheme that worthy name? by which ye are called. To blaspheme means to speak evil of or to defame. The rich were speaking evil of a name that James calls worthy. What a great description of our Lord's name, a name that is above every name. Remember the, a name, when we think of that in Scripture, it's talking about more than just an identification tag in the Bible, a person's name has to do with his character, not just a title, but your character. They were speaking evil of the worthy character of God himself. James includes the fact that his name is the name by which they were called. And we are called Christians. That's a term that came in the early church days, little Christ, followers of Christ. And we're in his family. And we sing, we rejoice to speak his name. We're called by the name of the one who's worthy. These are convicting questions. Look at what James has just logically presented to these readers. If God chooses the poor, why are you despising them? That person that came in that didn't have anything, why, why are you despising them? If God chooses that kind of person. And the second question, if rich men oppress you, take you to courts, blaspheme God's name, why are you so impressed with them? 
Third, we see partiality condemned. What are the end results of partiality in verses 8 through 13? First of all, when you are impartial, he says you're fulfilling the law of love. Verse 8, if ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. Here it's called the royal law because it's given by the king. Genuine believers ought to be known by their love. They're in Christ's kingdom. And his law of love permeates everything that they do. And we should have that kind of love. That, that's our king's law. It's a simple law. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a golden rule. It's God's law of love. In Luke 10, a lawyer asked what he could do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus asked him, what does the law say? You study it. You know what it is. And he said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Now, go do it, and you will live. The lawyer, it says, wanting to justify himself, asked, and who is my neighbor? Let's sidetrack this a little bit. Let's make sure that I love the people that ought to be loved. Who's my neighbor? And that's when Jesus inserted the story of the Good Samaritan. The neighbor was the Samaritan who showed mercy to the man who'd been beaten up and left by the side of the road. That's your neighbor. Do you love your neighbor? Are you fulfilling God's law? Or do you see people in need and just pass by on the other side? Impartial obedience to the law of love is, is good. The last three words of verse 8. If fulfilled, if you fulfill or keep it, you do well. The word there for well is Colossus. It is attractive. It is beautiful. And people should look at your Christian life because you are opening the gospel to everyone who needs it and impartially sharing the love of Christ. They should look at you and say, that is attractive. That's something that's beautiful. It's an outward sign of another word, agathos, which is internal, intrinsic goodness. And so because God has given you a clean heart, he's placed within you his goodness, his righteousness, now the other people ought to see that colossus, that beauty of love. So when you're impartial, you're fulfilling the, the law of love. But when you show partiality, you break the law of God, verses 9 through 11. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin, and you are convinced of the law as transgressors. But whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So first of all, notice partiality, favoritism, is not just something that's not that important. Not, you know, it's not that big a deal. After all, we're all impressed with people that are, that are wealthy and successful, right? Is this really a big issue? Notice what God calls it in verse 9. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin. In God's eyes, this is sin. And he says, the law judges you as a lawbreaker, a sinner. 
And then he says, breaking one part of the law, if you do that, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. Why? Because it's God's law, and you've gone against him. You violated his law. I love the way D.L. Moody illustrated this. He compared God's law to a chain of ten links, maybe the Ten Commandments, suspending a man over a cliff. And if all ten links break, the man will fall to his doom. If five links break, the man falls to his doom. If one link breaks, the man still falls to his doom just the same. Your sin is not just a prejudice against someone who comes with no jewelry and in tattered clothing. Your sin is against the one who made the law. You're sinning against God. What's the conclusion? Verses 12 and 13. Live as though you'll be judged by the law of liberty. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Now let's, let's pay really close attention to these last two verses, and then we'll be done. He's saying, live in such a way that shows you're mindful of the fact that one day you will be accountable for your words. For your actions. That's why he says, so speak ye and so do you. you. Your words, your actions, the things that you do, you're going to be accountable. The judgment here doesn't mean condemnation. Rather, it's, it's giving account of your life. And that will be done for believers when we uh, are standing before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. Not the great white throne, the judgment seat of Christ. That's where we'll give an account of what we have done as believers in our lives. We'll give an account of how we lived under the law of liberty. That is the law that gives us liberty. Law, this law doesn't restrict the believer. Romans 8.2 says, The law of the spirit of life in Christ hath made me free from the law of sin and death. This is a wonderful law. It's not legalism. Wearsby warns, liberty doesn't mean license. License, doing whatever I want to do, is the worst kind of bondage. Liberty means the freedom to be all that I can be in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful law, the law that gives liberty. And so we're going to, we're going to be judged by that law. Verse 13 contains two, two statements. Let me read verse 13 again. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. For the person who shows mercy, the first statement in verse 13 He'll be judged without mercy. God will hold us accountable for withholding mercy to others. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So we want to show mercy to others. That's how God will show mercy to us. The second statement, mercy rejoiceth against judgment. We need some help from a Greek scholar, and so I had to find one this week, Spirosodiates. He's got a wonderful commentary on this, the book of James, and he helps us understand what this mercy rejoiceth against judgment means, or mercy boasts against judgment, or mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen to what he says. The merciful man the man who showed mercy toward his fellow men down here on earth, when he appears before the Lord's judgment seat, will not be afraid of his own shortcomings, for against them he will have the mercy that he so consistently and generously manifested to others. The mercy that he showed down here 
will be a cause for boasting up there. Let's be merciful to people. We're to imitate God's mercy to us. He shows mercy to the poor. He shows mercy to the rich. Think about how the Lord Jesus treated everyone here the same. He's no respecter of persons. Let me close with a quote from John MacArthur. It made no difference to Jesus whether the one of whom he spoke or ministered was a wealthy Jewish leader or a common beggar, a virtuous woman or a prostitute, a high priest or a common worshiper, handsome or ugly, educated or ignorant, religious or irreligious, law-abiding citizen or criminal, his overriding concern was the condition of the soul. Let's stop looking at people and trying to determine their value, their merit, according to our faulty measuring system. Let's look at a soul who has immeasurable worth when it's touched and changed by the grace of God. Will you pray that God will help you to see people as he sees them? Matthew 9.36, it's a passage we just read in our scripture reading as a church. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. May God help us to see people as he sees them and share the gospel to people who need it impartially. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of scripture. And although it's, it's one that takes us to task because we often fall into this sin, help us to see how important it is to be impartial as we share the gospel to a world, everyone who needs to hear that Jesus died for their sins. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.